Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. going to guide you gently through another show as we are uh, often running in 2022. It's like uh, the break never happened. And we have a terrific guest to uh, join us this week. It's Richard Levick, who's the chairman and CEO of Levick. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Steve, thank you so much. What a great uh, honor it is to be here and always great to work with you. Yeah, um, looking forward to our conversation. We got Frank Washcott with us, as always, our executive editor. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Plenty of news to keep your team busy. Uh, in the yes, busy weeks. starts of the year. Busy yeah, starts of the sure. year, and and there's no shortage of people moving around and switching job to job. That's for and sure. retiring. So and retiring. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that. The top story is Andy Polanski retiring. Uh, very well known on these shores and from Weber Shamwick and IPG. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Edelman's response to their climate change critics and their client review. Everyone's talking about Wordle. So uh, we're going to as well. And uh, we'll talk about one of Frank's favorite subjects. It's millennials and Gen Z and their attitude to social media. And um, a bunch of people uh, news as, as always, but especially at the start of the year. So we'll get an update on those. And our annual agency rankings are open for submissions. Our agency business report, the biggest review of the PR agency sector. That'll be coming out at the start of May. And we're gathering the data for the rankings table. But uh, Richard, let's start with you. Um, CEO of Levick, and um, you don't give us your numbers, so we can't really uh, say for sure, but I'm guessing you're, I've seen numbers in the region of, what, 17 million revenues, annual revenues? Is that well, it, fair? You know, it depends on the year, and, and we've gone back to being more of a boutique, if you will. You know, and the challenge, I think, for crisis litigation public affairs agencies such as ourselves is that it really requires that a different personality, if you will. And whenever we've tried to branch out, as we did for a few years with other practices, you know, a lot of, and I know you know this from your experience, but a lot of people in PR, marketing, advertising are used to the more, you know, Monday through Friday weeks and, uh, you know, sort of a nine to six, if you will, an eight to seven but in crisis and litigation, it's, you know, 24 seven and you're dealing with all this work representing foreign countries and their different hours. We do a lot of work out of Asia, out of the Middle East. So we've gone over the last three, four years back to being a boutique and it's, you know, it's, it's, we're about a third of the size that uh, we were at that point. Um, but I think much truer to our mission, you know, a profitable firm uh, and one where the a spirit to core and I think the core of the agency is that crisis mentality, those crisis skills. And tell us a bit about that in the last couple of years, because clearly COVID was the biggest crisis most people have faced in their lives and in business and organizations and governments and and. and Across the board, crisis comms in the certainly in the first three months and and beyond has been top of mind. And if anything, the C suite has has a new respect for the 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 role of the PR person, whether that's in house or as an external advisor. So tell us a bit about how you've seen that develop over the last couple of years under under the COVID nineteen pandemic. 
You know, I'm, I, I, I love your question, but I'm going to go back a little bit further. And I'm, I'm also going to posit a, a, a different theory, if I may, which is when I first started in this business 40 years ago and about 30, 35 years ago on the agency side is, and yes, I am a child prodigy. I started at four in case you were wondering. But, I was going to say, you don't look old enough. Yeah, thank you. You're, <laughs> you're very kind. And Steve, it's, it's good to know that, that PR and malarkey have nothing in common. So. But, you know, it, I really thought for a long time that crisis communications, and, and when I say crisis litigation in the public affairs, was uh, immune to down markets. And that was true for a goodly period. You know, when the collapse of antitrust during the Reagan administration, it was not harmed. And the first time we really saw it impacted was during the the Great Recession, 2008, 2009. For us, we were very fortunate. We were representing AIG, and we were had two teams embedded, one in New York, one in Washington. So it wasn't a deep challenge for us for most of that period, but it was at the end. And I think ever since then, we are much more sensitive to economics uh, and particularly to politics. You know, it's usually uh, traditional lobbying firms that are impacted by election years, both the federal and the midterms. But we find ourselves impacted by that some now, too, even though we're a nonpartisan agency. We represent, as I mentioned, so many uh, foreign governments who are not you know, particularly acute to just the U.S. government. But having said that, I think as tragic and as significant as COVID has been, and no one, myself very much included, wants to relive 2020 or even uh, parts of 2021, is that the Trump administration was actually a bigger challenge for us. And that was because for the first time ever, you had a president who was the start and finish of every news cycle. And so we would get those calls, just as many calls as we would pre the Trump administration. But rather than they be that, that, that those um, uh, matters be long term retainers, they tended to be a month long. So instead of looking at, you know, $500,000 or $800,000 in revenue on a matter, you were looking at sometimes 15,000, 45,000. And it just meant a marathon every day. We're starting to see in every quarter since uh, January uh, 20th uh, with the new president, uh, we have seen every quarter we've seen improvement and significant improvement and a return to retainers. But it's still we're still behind the, 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 the kinds of years when you would bring in a million dollar client twice in a week and just say, you know, life is good. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point you make. Every administration is different and every brand and every corporation has to adapt their communication and their policies to to um, react to that. But under the Trump administration, you never really knew what was coming next. And certainly PR teams were on alert, especially on the West Coast, in case there was a tweet that went out that mentioned them and that they had to react quickly. And even newsrooms were peopled, you know, at four in the morning in a way that they probably weren't in the old days. So I guess that's what you're talking about, that it was a need for strategy. Say, what if, what if we get dinged by Trump? You know, do we, do we, when do we react? When do we play a straight bat and just sort of uh, wait for it to die down? And, and what should us, and, and should there be any proactivity in that strategy? Is that a fair summation? 
Uh, well, I think it is. And first of all, I have to tell you, I'm disappointed. We're about 10 minutes in the show, Stephen. It took you this long to make a cricket reference. So yes, I'm, I was, I, when I said it, I was like, nobody's going to know what the hell I'm talking about. But so, that's, that's not unusual on this show. So yeah. we will, But I think you said right after this, we're doing live from the, uh, the Pakistan-India test match. So I'm so happy to hear you say that we're going to work that into the show. And I think no, that's that is good. a passionate sporting event. If ever I, if ever you wanted a rivalry, that is, that is the one a sporting rivalry and, right. and, and political well and we can we can of course spend the rest of the show talking about that 77 jamaican uh, cricket team which uh, <laughs> you know was was always a remarkable team i think you know i think a key issue one was you had donald trump tweeting all the time which was new media didn't know how to handle it and, it, and you're right it was you know 24 7 but it also dictated news cycles two that traditional media put on far more journalists onto political coverage and remove them from business coverage. So that meant that they were covering everything from a political point of view. And, you know, if you look at numbers now, they're saying that for television news, print news, the decline is extraordinary. Well, that's because, you know, politics has become like a combination of Hollywood and NASCAR, right? If it's not for the accidents, we call it traffic. And it became an accident every day that, you know, the media wanted to cover. And three, by removing all those reporters off of the business beats and skinning them down, skinning them down, then, you know, the in-house CMOs and other communications professionals knew that they were only going to be the target for a matter of hours or days, not as in the case of AIG, uh, BP and the Gulf oil spill, months and months, most of a year. Name more than three big business stories, multi-week business stories during the Trump administration. I can only think of three, Volkswagen and, and Dieselgate, uh, Boeing and the launch of their new airliner and Carlos Goshen. Pretty much everything else was, you know, one and done. And that just changed from a crisis point of view, what, you know, the duration of what you were being hired to do. Yeah. And sometimes it was better to just let that, let that roll over to the next one and, and not necessarily engage because that might extend the story, I guess. Um, exactly right. You mentioned that you work with foreign company countries and, you know, some agencies have decided not to take business like that. I know you, do you still work with Qatar? I know you used to. We work, um, with, we work with them for a number of years. We don't right now, you know, we've represented a number of Middle East countries, ironically, uh, the Emirates, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Dubai. And then, you know, when we were representing Dubai, there was no issue with Qatar. But of course, there would become the blockade. And we were working for Qatar uh, for the duration just prior to and for the duration of the uh, the blockade and some of the post-World uh, Cup win uh, issues. I have to tell you, I know a lot of uh, companies, a lot of agencies are uh, frightened away from doing foreign country work, from doing sovereign work. I also know because of Brandon Van Grack uh, during uh, the past administration being over at the Department of Justice ahead of FARA. And, you know, I've gotten to know Brandon pretty well over the years, and he's actually been on my podcast and, and we're in touch frequently, or somewhat frequently, pardon me, that he, you know, he had a much stronger sense 
of what the uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act should be like really added teeth and rightfully pointed out that, you know, Farah had been written as a result of World War II, particularly because of GM and a few other companies, uh, Ford's involvement with the brown shirts prior to the war. And, you know, the Congress rightly wanted to prohibit American companies from getting involved with countries that would become soon our enemy. But he really added teeth to that. And I think that a lot of there's there's virtually full transparency and a lot of firms fear that. And look, it's part of the work that we've done, you know, and it's Guantanamo Bay, the Catholic Church, uh, the Boko Haram kidnappings. I already mentioned a lot of the matters out of the Middle East. We've been protested. You know, I've been a recipient of many a death threat. Uh, people outside of our buildings followed by spies in different Middle East countries. The list goes on and on. I've spent a fair amount of time in war-torn countries, you know, surrounded by bodyguards. I think that's an honor and part of what it is that we do. And my belief in terms of the ethics of representation is you represent as a firm anyone you want. But once you represent them, unless extraordinary new facts come to your attention, that you stand by them because you, as a communications firm, you cannot leave them in the lurch and worse off than they were. And the other thing I think, and I know uh, later you're probably going to be talking or want to talk about uh, Edelman and Richard Edelman and, and, and climate change. Uh, and their approach there, because I know they've you know been front and center of a lot of attention. Sure, yeah, yeah, we will get to that. But but I think that you you know we have a responsibility to our clients, and sometimes we have to take the slings and arrows for them. And I think the key issue is there is nothing like being with a head of a company or a head of state or with the you know key members of their cabinet. And being asked, what should we do? And our job, our job as communicators is not to spin, is not to put lipstick on a pig. Our job is to help fix the problem. And I have to tell you, I remember being in Dubai one morning where I used to spend a lot of time and I was meeting with a cabinet member and the sheikh asked me a question about something that was not in our brief and how we would handle it. And fortunately, I had been reading up on that. And I said, well, you know, if that were in our brief, I would do one, two, and three. Four hours later, I'm getting out of the elevator in one of those Dubai skyscrapers. So back in the day of Blackberries, and it takes a minute or so for all your emails to download. And all these emails come in and I see CNN breaking news email, which says the Emirates of Dubai and Sheikh Mohammed have just passed a law citing one, two, and three, the very three things that I had suggested. And I thought, wow, I've spent my whole life in Washington, D.C. I have never seen Congress move. I, I guess this is what the Supreme Court of the United States meant uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, all deliberate speed, four hours. Well, I guess that's what happens when you go to... I'm not going to call him a dictatorship, but a, no, a, a benevolent a, kingdom. You know, a benevolent yeah, kingdom, exactly. right? Where do you draw the line, Richard? I mean, do you, you know, will you work with big tobacco? Would you work with Saudi Arabia, for example? Would you work on this new big city, Neom? Um, what is there, is there a line, and where where is that for you? The, you know, the line historically has has been OFAC. That is, if the federal government prohibits representation, I also believe it's important to always have 
the conversation. Take the meeting. You can always say no. You know, the, the before, just before the 2016 election, uh, Russian government under President Putin had approached us through one of their U.S. law firms, uh, and we turned that business down. Um, I think that the you know the wisdom of that. Uh, likely came true, but I'm not, I'm also not a big fan of turning business down. Remember, one of the things that that handling the really hard matters and and being there at the table. You know, PR people all the time say, "Oh, we want a seat at the table. We want a seat at the table." But then, when it becomes really hot and really challenging, and we in fact may be in front of the bullets. We tend to not be quite as courageous. And if you want to sit at the table, that means you not only get the opportunity, you get the responsibility. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and uh, just to finish, you're one of those PR pros who's, who's out in the media actively. You know, not a lot of people aren't. And um, sometimes I wrote a blog about this at the end of last year. Get the impression the mainstream media kind of misunderstands what PR people do. They They see PR solely through the lens of, media relations and the approaches they get in their email inbox rather than the very sophisticated levels of service that PR pros are offering across the board in lots of different areas. What's your take on that as someone who engages a lot with mainstream media and in fact, you know, is part of, is on a lot of shows and talking about the profession? Well, uh, two, you know, two responses. One, uh, you know, I'm a, a former professor of the politics of U.S. constitutional law. I still teach law at Fordham University, teaching crisis communications uh, in the law school. I, I've always been a First Amendment zealot. I'm a lawyer by training. I believe the First Amendment means something. Uh, and I don't think most people understand it, but it is one of the things that makes this country great. It is one of the things that allows for full and fair debate. I don't know what Jefferson or Adams would say about the Internet. You know, Jefferson's response had always been more speech as the cure to speech. I myself have always been a small D Democrat, as in uh, the cure for democracy was more democracy, very much from a Jeffersonian point of view. Adams, on the other hand, was more Republican, small R representative, which is one of the reasons, a key reason why they didn't talk for most of the last 25 years of their lives until their uh, deathbed conversions. But we, that's so important. And I think journalists play such an incredibly important role uh, that uh, I just so admire what they do. I think the Washington Post, for example, their tagline, democracy dies in darkness. I think the role that the New York Times has played over the last five years as one of the institutions that helps salvage and save our democracy. And, you know, of course, we could speak an hour about this. But, you know, one of the things that the Gerasimov doctrine did, which was what uh, when Putin was with the KGB, now the FSB, this is 30 years ago, they, how do we compete with the West when we can no longer compete militarily or economically? And the Gerasimov Doctrine is a five-part doctrine to destabilize the West, China too. But in looking at the West, they said, we want people to lose faith in institutions. That's the bureaucracy, that's Congress, that's the fourth estate in the media. So I think that although sometimes a challenge, the media plays a particularly important role uh, in upholding this great experiment. And the other thing very quickly is I would say, 
you know, 20 and 30 years ago, before Al Gore invented the internet, we would hear, um, you know, journalists often refer to the work we do as the dark side. Well, the economics of media now, which have been tragic and I think have harmed all of us, but the economics have a lot of former journalists over on the PR side. And I just don't think we very often hear the dark side anymore. Yeah, but I, do, I don't think that uh, me journalists understand the scope or choose not to. And uh, I think that PR needs needs almost needs some PR for itself, you know, because I don't think it gets uh, a fair representation in the mainstream media. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that could take up a whole other show. You're right. Thanks, Richard. Good to chat to you. And we'll get your input on the news stories. Frank, the big story this week, Andy Polanski, well known in this parish, um, CEO, former CEO of uh, Weber Shanwick and uh, now at, at Dextra. He's retiring, um, but a relatively young man. That's right. Um, he is planning to step down uh, in June from his role at Dextra, which, of course, is the, the network that includes Weber Shanwick and Golan and uh, a bunch of other marketing specialist firms. Um, IPG has not identified a successor yet. Um, and Andy will be working with Philippe Krakowski, uh, the CEO of Interpublic, uh, over the next six months to identify a successor and uh, put other planning in place. Uh, of course, before he was the CEO of, uh, of Dextra, formerly known as CMG, uh, he was the CEO of Weber Shanwick and their president for uh, years before that. Uh, and um, that was that was the agency he broke in with after a, a career in journalism. So yeah, we're, I, I think really one of the the best known people in the industry, a uh, mentor to a lot of people out there, a lot of agency leaders. Uh, interested to see what he's up to uh, post retirement. Like he said, he said he said he still has a lot of energy left. So we'll see what he gets up to. Yeah, he's uh, he started out as an assistant account executive at Bozell, which was uh, you know it was what uh, where the roots of Weber Shanwick lay, and he's been there thirty eight years. Still relatively young, as a sixty year old person. So yeah, he's got lots of energy left. Going to work with nonprofits and on personal projects, and I'm sure we'll see him popping up again. Not necessarily in the the PR world, by the sounds of it. And, um, you know, um, uh, planned succession at Weber and Golin. He feels they're in really good shape under Gail Hyman and Matt Neal over at Golin. Um, so, yeah, is, is Andy someone you've come across over the years, Richard? He's the sort of person I've never, never really heard anyone have a bad word to say about. You know, I don't know, Andy. I just know his reputation, I should say, unfortunately. And, you know, that Steve, that's what I understand about him. Not only, obviously, a great leader, but... Uh, you know, a really humble, kind, uh, and servant leader. So uh, I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to work with him, but I wish him well. And and Steve, I would just edit what you said, when because I'm a little bit older than Andy, and you said relatively young man. I think what you meant to say was a very young man. Yeah, I, I did. I, I was, thanks for putting me right on that. Uh, that's uh, that's true. I've got to look in the mirror every morning as well, so uh, I need some of that pep talk. Um, let's get, get on to the other big uh, big agency, which is Edelman, and they've uh, been getting some heat from critics of their policies on climate change and and the clients that they work with. But they put a big response together, Frank, toward the end of last week, and uh, it's got a lot of attention. Talk us through it. Well, it's the big response, yes, but we're also looking to see what they do over the next 90 days to a few months, let's say. So uh, they put together a review of their entire client roster related to energy. It's led by uh, the global chair of the climate practice, Robert 
Uh, Casamento would have covered more than 330 clients, closely scrutinized 20 emissions intensive clients around the world. Uh, it looked at them via carbon disclosure project scores, IPCC reports, and the International Energy Agency's net zero by 2050 roadmap for the global energy sector. Now, they, they have not stopped working with any of these companies as a result of the review yet, uh, but their CEO, Richard Edelman, is saying they will. Uh, they may have to have some tough conversations uh, with clients uh, over the coming weeks and months, and uh, we'll be interested to see if they part ways with any of them. Uh, like you mentioned, they've been taking a lot of heat, most specifically from uh, Clean Creatives, uh, which is an activist group that is encouraging firms to drop um, emissions-producing clients uh, and energy companies. So, uh, yeah, I think the big question is: Are they going to drop anybody uh, over the next few months? One of the interesting parts I noted was their desire to set up a sort of PR communications council of across the industry to uh, address this. What did you think of that? Do you think anyone's going to buy into it or are they going to say, oh, actually, we'll let you take this one? <laughs> I get the sense it's going to be the later. Um, I, uh, this is right now, whether fair or not, Edelman is taking the brunt of these attacks from clean creatives and, and other activist groups. I mean, they're the, the firm that you, you see in the headlines more than the others. So um, I, I don't know if um, any of the other shops are going to be so happy to step in front of the bullet, so to speak. Yeah, interesting one. Richard, you've, you've worked with uh, fossil fuel clients, Chevron, which is a big Edelman client as well over the years. And um, I know you've got views on this. What's what's your take on the way Edelman has responded and the overall issue of, you know, should agencies work with fossil fuel clients? Well, first, some real quick background. You know, I, my, in addition to my law degree, I have a master's degree in environmental advocacy, environmental communications. So going back, you know, 40 some years, uh, and certainly I was an environmental activist before it was quote unquote cool. Uh, two is I, I love Richard's approach here and the approach of uh, Edelman. I think it's exactly the kind of leadership you would expect from them and from him. I think it's transparent. I think it's disclosive. It's thoughtful. He's walked uh, the fine line between some internal concerns, external pressure, client needs. And some may be critical because, you know, Frank, as you point out, they haven't made any hard decisions yet. But I think it's the kind of informed and thoughtful approach that one would expect. And then three, and as you point out, Steve, we've represented a number of the energy companies handled the Gulf oil spill, not for BP, but another major player there offshore and, and, and many others. There is nothing just as it was incredible as it is incredibly powerful to be with the head of state. Remember you're not being asked. I know I used this expression before by these energy companies to put lipstick on a pig. I know that's sometimes what happens, but most of the time you're being asked, what should we be doing? And I know that, uh, that, that's what uh, Hugh Pate, the general counsel at Chevron, uh, as you say, an Edelman client, uh, was a longtime client of ours on the legal side. Uh, that's the question that he asked, which is how can we do the right thing? And we want to be collectively, we are, as an industry, we want to be in there as part of the conversation. And the other thing that I will say about the critics is be careful what you wish for. One, a lot of the data is not correct. Um, it it fails to accurately take into account carbon offsets, which can make some companies look greener than others when really they're not reducing uh, pollution in their carbon footprint. 
two is where does this end? Does this end in cocoa representation, transportation, airlines? Uh, and what about what about electric vehicles? You know, uh, we need cobalt, which is going to wreak havoc with the Congolese and so many and, and so many levels. And I think that people need to make sure if you're going to be critical, one, make sure you have the right data Two, look at what companies like Edelman are doing and be fully appreciative. And three, understand that none of us have the perfect solution in this transition period is key. You know, there are billions of people on the planet that require carbon-based fuels for heating, for food, for their medicine, for children in order to keep it uh, proper temperature. And if the transition is not handled well, billions of people, their lives and livelihood will be at stake. So I think that it's this is a sensitive issue that requires exactly the kind of thinking that Edelman's bring to the table. Yeah, well, there's a nuance. We could, again, do a whole show on this and uh, many, many elements to your, what you just said that we could pick up on. But one, one question I had for you, why do you think it is that Edelman gets, seems to be the sole agency getting the heat for this when there are dozens of advertising agencies and many PR firms working with uh, fossil fuel companies, but none of them seem to be being called out. It's just Edelman. It's very curious to me. Have you got a, a, a view on that, Rich? Yeah, you know, every crisis is Shakespearean in nature, right? It has a, it has a villain, uh, it has a hero, and the villain is usually the largest entity with a target on its back. So financial crisis was AIG, the Gulf oil spill was BP. You know, there was Anadarko, there was Hal Burden, there was Moex, Moeco, whom we represented. But it becomes the BP Gulf oil spill. Same with the financial crisis. Our imaginations require a singular quote unquote villain, whether or not they've done anything wrong or certainly by historical standards had done anything wrong. And I think the same is true here. It's what we often refer to as the success tax. The bigger you are in an industry or a silo, the more likely you are to be criticized for your success. Yeah, I take that. I take that point as part of being the biggest in the area, and they're the biggest PR firm in the world, and they have to they have to take the take the the shots for that. But there are many bigger advertising agencies taking many more millions of dollars from fossil fuel companies who, who seem to be getting a free pass on this. It's just a curious observation. But uh, anyway, we'll see how that one pans out. Frank, everyone's talking about Wordle. I don't know if you're playing it, but anyway, t- talk us through it. And uh, brands are getting involved as well. I have not played Wordle yet, but uh, I know the basics now, which is to say, uh, you know, you have to uh, pick a word, so to speak, that has so many letters and you get six chances to do it or you're out. Um, I think that's basically it, I hope. Um, Anyway, so brands are getting into it because everybody's buzzing about it on social media. And I'm sure you're just seeing it organically pop up in your social media uh, feeds. But uh, we have a good collection of them for everybody from uh, Buffalo Wild Wings to the Minions, you know, those little yellow guys. And uh, Jack in the Box, the the chain and square. And uh, it's... it's a fun assignment for the social media teams to uh, to do something like this, and there's some good ones out there. Yeah, for sure. Richard, are you playing Wordle? 
I, I am not. And, you know, the only, you know, of course, I'll, I'll show my age here by saying the first time I heard about it was when I got the email from you today saying, oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, I would only say this, though, I think that one of the things we want to learn from the gaming industry is it has always been on the cutting edge of where the internet is going next. And the gaming community has always been about just that community where so many other platforms on the internet are about monetizing rage. So I get a lot of hope from the valuing of the, com of the community. And I think that if uh, other platforms can learn, and maybe with the help of Congress, to make their money through things that support community rather than destroy it, um, it would be a better place for all of us. That's a good point, Richard. That's a nice opportunity for me to promote our big features that we made live in the last week with uh, senior execs at uh, Twitch, Zynga, and Rec Room, and talking about exactly what you're talking about there, community and the way brands are playing there, but the way uh, people are hanging out, and especially young people. So do check those out. Really three great features. And sticking on this topic of social media and millennials, Gen Z, frankly, a favorite topic. Um, we've got some interesting research uh, about this. Talk us through it. Yeah, we have some research from DKC, um, and it, it's kind of, a, it's interesting in that with, with, and this is across age groups, but especially there's a focus on Gen Z and millennials, because I think there's an expectation that they are going to be savvier about social media uh, and the information they get from it. But you see large percentages of them, uh, both Gen Z and millennials, looking at social media as their go-to option for news, but also more than half of them. Uh, saying that they don't necessarily trust it, um, which is an interesting juxtaposition. And I think you could question that. But at the same time, I think you even see sometimes as, as, as somebody who works in the media, you know, a, a new source or a, a new website pops up in your social media and it looks interesting and you do click on it. But it does take you a couple of seconds to go, you know, do, do I actually believe what I'm reading here if you're not familiar with the source? So I can see how this can be true, too. I think that's a healthy way to approach it. And uh, I think they're definitely engaging with social, but with with a healthy skepticism, which, uh, you know, as journalists, I think we can all uh, all be uh, on board with. Um, Frank, it's the start of a new year. There's always loads of people moves and some quite noteworthy ones that we've covered over the past 10 days. Yes, uh, we've talked about Andy Polanski uh, retiring from Dextra, uh, but we have a number of other ones that have popped up. Uh, in the first few weeks of the year. Uh, a big one at BCW is they bring on a North American Executive Creative Director. That's Diego Berchagny. Uh, he comes from Draftline YYZ, which is the, the in-house agency for Anheuser-Busch. Uh, one thing that we're looking at right now is whether or not there are more people switching from the in-house side to the agency side uh, and why that might be. Because uh, we've noticed a few other ones popping up. One of them is that Ketchum has a new leader of North American health, uh, and that is Novartis' Samantha Schwartz. Um, and uh, she is going to be leading assignments across their uh, healthcare sector. Um, She's reporting up to North America President Neera Chowdhury in what's a newly created position over at Ketchum. And of course, we're watching the healthcare space really carefully with our new daily newsletter, the uh, Healthcare Daily. Along those lines, uh, M. Booth Health has a new CEO, Stacey Bernstein. She's replacing Tim Bird uh, as the chief executive of the health agency within M. Booth. Um, she comes from Weber Shanwick, where she has worked in various roles uh, 
since 2010. And uh, here's an interesting one as well. Um, former communications lead at ExxonMobil and Medtronic, Rob Clark, uh, has joined Keras Life Sciences. Uh, he worked at Medtronic for 16 years and two stints um, before going over to ExxonMobil. So he's going to start to lead Keras Life Sciences, communications, corporate marketing, government relations efforts. Uh, and yeah, so look, a lot of a lot of uh, people on the move to start the year. Interesting that he's left Exxon and left the fossil it fuel is. space. And uh, the the guy from BP, Jeff, uh, I'm blanking on his surname. Is Jeff Morell. Jeff Morell moved from BP to Disney. So That's yeah, correct. maybe uh, maybe the writing's on the wall over there. But uh, and finally, um, yeah, the agency business reports our biggest focus on the agency sector, PR agency sector of the year. And we've started the call for data and submissions for that for the annual agency rankings. So if your agency's not on the list or hasn't received the form yet, make sure you ping us um, abr at prweek.com or you can reach out to myself or Frank and we'll send you the necessary details. Um, but uh, Richard, been terrific having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, enjoyed chatting and uh, good luck to you in 2022. Steve, Frank, thank you so much. What a great pleasure. And uh, thank you, Frank, as always. And um, yeah, another busy week at PR Week. Uh, just to finish off, Dashboard 25, that's where we recognize the uh, leaders in comms tech, the movers and shakers. You've still got until Sunday to get your submissions in for that, so make sure you do. Those can be people in the agency world, in-house at clients, or at the vendors, tech, tech providers. Women of Distinction, which we used to call Hall of Femme, the deadline for that is the 19th of January. So make sure you've got that on your radar. You've got another week there to the first deadline. Our global awards, also first deadline next week, the 16th. And then final deadline is the 29th. And Frank mentioned healthcare. We have a new set of awards, healthcare and pharma comms awards. The first deadline for that is the 2nd of February. This, the final deadline is the 9th. So look out for that. And then finally, our brand film awards, they're launching next week. So do look out for those. But that's what, all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.